Hi, I'm Sherry Fella, the founder of Bloombase. And I'm Allison Lochran, partner at Bloombase. Welcome to the Power 2 podcast. On this podcast, we explore power from a feminine perspective, how it shows up in and with people from diverse experiences. We want to explore how, when, and why humans feel powerful, and when they don't, how to get there. Power 2 is personal power, the ability to choose our own states and behaviors. Our intent with this conversation isn't just to have an intriguing conversation. Our intent is to have an impactful one, one that opens up possibilities and may even change behaviors. Welcome to Power 2. So welcome back to the Power 2 podcast. Al, how are you doing today? Today's a great day because it's podcast day. And we're so excited. Hi, Elisa. I am so happy to be here. We have Elisa Campeldonico Bar in the house from Girls <laughs> Inc. Ugh. We're so excited. This might be no disrespect to anyone else that's been on the podcast. <laughs> this might be a conversation Alice and I have like fangirled about the most because we're all three so passionate about this topic. So, yeah. I'm so glad to be here with incredibly strong, smart, and bold women who. We're going to be changing the landscape for girls um, in Indianapolis and beyond. So it's just a pleasure. Yeah. Okay, Elisa, you just lead this podcast today. That was a great lead in. You go. <laughs> so we're going to start off with our first question, Elisa, for you, which is tell us what power means to you. Such a good question. And I, I think power can mean so many different things to different people, especially when we're talking about women and girls and intersectionality between women and girls and and all that that entails. I think for me, it really boils down to influence. And I like to pair that with service to others, because I think that that is really when you get transformational impact is when you are able to influence the landscape to change systemic structures for others or for an individual. And that's really where true power comes, because it's sustainable, it's transformational. Um, it's uplifting, and I think most of all, it's contagious. And so that's that's really what I think of when I think of power and the way that you use that power to to leave the earth better than when you found it. Well, do we have a mic drop? I feel, <laughs> you know what? I'm going to steal. If I can ever articulate it that clearly, I'm going to like memorize it. Yeah, I was just going to say, I know there's a lot, you know, in the, all the DEI efforts right now, there's so... And for our listeners, DEI, D- diversity, equality, inclusion. There's so much talk of that right now. And the word intersectionality is getting thrown out more and more. What does that mean for you? Just so we're clear before we dive in a little mm-hmm. bit. So intersectionality to me, I look at that from the lens of, of what I do in my own personal experience. So um, personally, I have a different lived experience than, than you, Sherry, or you, Allison. We all have different identities and different experiences within our umbrella of womanhood. And you know, I just want to make sure that all of the girls that we serve, just now talking about my role at Girls, Inc., that no matter where they come from, what they look like, that we are serving them where they are. Um, and so intersectionality within the breadth of, of gender is, you know, you could be a black woman, a, a, a daughter of immigrants. Um, it's that we're not a monolith. You know, you can't just say we are women and because we are, but we all have different lived experiences. We have different identities within our identities, within our identities. And we just need to make sure that we are serving 
all women where they are and understand their experiences and their challenges and most importantly, their opportunities because we need to make sure that there are all sorts of voices within our gender that are being in leadership positions, that are being uh, cared for, that are given opportunities to thrive. And that's what I think, that's what I mean when I'm talking about intersectionality. I love your description of that. When you describe that, like the monolith, I think we do that all the time. And honestly, I think it's why, I'll speak for me, white women don't get it. Well, what I mean about that is, I think a lot of us white women, yes, I can speak to some of the the growing up you know, I wasn't in an affluent family, like some of those things I can speak to, but I, we really haven't lived a really diverse experience compared to some of our sisters that are, that are of different backgrounds, different skin colors. Like our, our lived experience as a group of white women. And yes, I know I'm generalizing and I'll probably get killed for this. I don't care. Like we really have had a pretty homogeneous experience in terms of how we've been treated in social systems or organizational systems, et cetera. And so I think we miss a lot of the diversity you're speaking to, Elisa, and and how we meet women where they are and not assume we know where they've been. Right. Do you think I'm right, Allison, in saying that? I know I made a generalization, but... Well, it's funny because that right when you said that, <laughs> first you said you were chomping at the bit, I was trying to actually control my trigger around what exactly what you said. That's why I was like, no, no, you go. Because I'm going to sound extremely ragey right now <laughs> if I speak. And, then, and that's why I sort of jumped in because to that point, I think that's so important. Like I was sort of on that same word monolithic. And because that's been my own experience too, that I was so narrow in my definition of even feminism and what that meant. And I think that to your point, Sherry, white women don't get it. I really don't. I think that's a huge learning curve for all of us. I think there are a lot of women that are now on that journey, but that idea that the identity inside of an identity, inside of an identity, even being a white woman, you can still be a lesbian or you could, you know, like there's so much in there that we're missing. And I think monolithically feminism is only really has been and truly inclusive of white women, at least in my experience. Yeah, I think that there are levels of privilege, you know, in all of us, you know, there are these layers that go so deep and, you know, these are systems that were built by predominantly white men and who are wealthy landowners, right, by design. Mm -hmm. And they're so far reaching and so intrinsic that, you know, our levels of privilege, whether you're a white woman or, you know, experiencing poverty. I mean, there's so many different intersections. So I definitely don't want to to limit it to race, but I do think that there are, you know, it's like onions, peeling back onions of privilege. And it's the systems that we've been operating in. It's it's the history that we learn in, the, in our education system. It's right, our education right. systems in general that really reinforce some of these structures. And so I think these are really healthy dialogues that we're having and at least acknowledging, you know, these systems, the foundations that we were dealt, you know, and we have to be really intentional about what we're doing to dismantle them in a sustainable way to make lasting change. I love the visual of pulling back the onion. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's really been the experience. So when I say white, I'm going to just clear this up. When I say white women from now on, I mean me. I'm going to talk about my own experience. And, yeah. and for those white women who might be listening and you're triggered, I would just have you investigate that before you just decide I'm wrong. Um, but that peeling back of the onion is 
like, Elisa, that's so much of the experience I've been sharing with you, right? As I peel back a layer of my onion, I'm like, oh, I didn't know that was there. Oh my God, I'm so ashamed or I'm so, I didn't know or I'm blind or I'm whatever. I love that metaphor. If we could all hold it like that, we would get a lot further faster. Yeah, I agree. I think it's great though that people are willing to to learn, you know, and to ask questions and be uncomfortable and receive it. And sometimes just sit and receive it. You know, sometimes it's okay to just not say anything at all and just be, because I think a lot of times, especially with women who are in executive positions, for example, you're so trained to want to say something in response, whether that's defensive or not. But I just want to also tell people it's okay to just sit in it and not have a response. That might even be the best reaction in some instances. And unfortunately, sometimes I I think that a lot of folks who do experience a lot of privilege have a gut reaction to respond and take up space. And it's time to take up less space right now as you're learning and um, learning about your own privileges um, and, and how you might be able to support populations that are more marginalized than others. Uh, if you hear that pause, it's because Alice and I are like cartoon characters in the background while Elisa's talking and we're like, our arms are in the air. We're both leaning back in our chair. If we were in the studio, we'd be like throwing stuff in Kent. Like it, it'd be insane. So we're just trying to gather our thoughts because that sounds so simple, right? Al, like just receive it, sit in it. We say that all the time. Like, of course, like, oh my God. I mean, that that resonates so much with me. It actually, I'm sort of like flushed because it actually causes me a great deal of embarrassment to think about that that could have just been my reaction in those moments where I've had very deep learning given to me by someone where I could have just said, I hear that, I hear you, and nothing else, and just let it sit. Wouldn't that be refreshing? It would be for me, too. But also, I think that we also have to acknowledge that at least my experience of being a woman is always making sure that other people feel comfortable around me. And so I think that is somewhat of a a gendered reaction that we have just to start talking and build the space because we want to make sure everyone's comfortable, including ourselves. And so I think it's a common, it's just a common gut reaction, but I think it's great that, you know, we're checking ourselves on that, myself included. Right. And I appreciate the grace that you extend by acknowledging that that is absolutely a common gendered reaction because we've been taught as women, it's our job to make people comfortable, not ourselves. But still, that instruction, I hope a lot of people hear that. You don't have to agree. You don't have to rebut. You don't even have to acknowledge that you understand. Just hear it. So, Lisa, you've talked about, obviously, your role with Girls, Inc., and I hope we get, you know, we'll get to why we're so passionate in being partners with you and some of the incredible initiatives you have in front of you. But why are you personally so, I mean, I feel like we've covered a lot of inroads here, right? But why are you so personally passionate about this this work you're doing? It's not even work. I'm trying to find the right word. It's like a calling uh, at Girls, Inc. Yeah. Um, the girls that we serve, I, I see myself in them and... Um, you know, this has been, serving women and girls has been a consistent passion and purpose of mine since I was young. I had the the blessing of uh, having a really transformational 
grandmother in my life from a young age who luckily lived in Chicago when I was growing up and was really just foundational. And seeing somebody who looked like me get to where she was, she was one of the first female diplomats in Panama and she was stationed in Chicago. She came from you know, the middle of nowhere, rural Panama, um, and worked her way through pretty oppressive systems to be, um, you know, a leading foreign policy official for the country. And, you know, having somebody who looked like me be that was really powerful at a young age before she moved back to the country when she was five, and when I was five. And then, you know, my mom really struggled. Uh, she suffered from uh, mental health issues from a young age. She, we were food insecure. She always relied on a partner to provide financial support. And that was, you know, a lifestyle that my sister and I recognized at a very young age that we did not want to be a part of. We wanted to be financially independent. We never wanted to have to rely on a partner to get by. And that was kind of our North Star, you know, and having that sisterhood, you know, the literal sisterhood of somebody to lift me up when I'm down, to check me when I'm, when I'm wrong, to tell me the truth to my face, to walk with me on my journey and on my path has, has really just been uh, a, such a blessing in my life um, to have that. All of those things, you know, the the poverty, the, you know, exploration into, you know, our international, our Latin American culture, um, having a, a successful woman who looked like me that understood my life experience, all of those things together really centered me on what is the power of investing in women and girls and what happens to individuals and communities when you do that. It ends up having its tentacles and its reach everywhere, right? Housing economy, education, community, healthy living, healthy water, all of that. If you are investing in women to lead those charges, the community changes. And I've seen that in real time all over the world before I was at Girls Inc. I lived in Chile and Tanzania and India working with women's groups and seeing when what happens when you are in some of the most poor communities in the world and what happens when you let women and provide the infrastructure to let women lead, it really changes the entire landscape. That, that is what a thriving community is. It's one that, that values women. And so, you know, that's always been my, my life journey and purpose. That's why I, when I was an attorney at IU, I worked on Title IX litigation and policy because now it's about sexual harassment and assault. How are you expected to thrive when you are going to be a STEM leader, when you are going to be a woman in government, if you are being sexually assaulted and harassed at your place of work, it's a ridiculous barrier that we should not have to face, but we do. Um, you know, and that eventually led me to the BMV. The reason why I went there is because I was, I was going to be the only woman, the only Latina, the youngest by at least 30 years on the executive team. And we are a diverse state of of 50, over 50% women, people who are not just really great, well-intentioned white men. Um, and so you have to have those voices in the room and the representation of leadership at all levels. And so that's eventually what led me to Girls Inc. And I'm just living my passion purpose through 
these fantastic girls and their families that really just are going to be our future. And so if we're not providing a healthy, educated, and independent workforce and leaders and women who are going to be able to to change the landscape of our world. If you can't get on board and invest in that, I don't know what you can get on board and invest in. Um, I'm really just really living my life's work and it's a blessing to do, to live this passion and purpose as my job. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. I'm like, I'm like having a heart attack. I'm so excited. Like, Oh my God. I, first of all, Elisa, I know that you're very, um, you're very thoughtful about what parts of you you share just because you're always focused on your organization and the girls. And I can't tell you every time I get to hear what draws you to this or what, what has really shaped you in terms of your path. It's so inspiring to hear. I'm so grateful that we have you in our community and that the girls have you to be kind of that, that North star for them. I just, it's so inspiring to me. Thank you for saying that. I really do. I really do mean it, but I, I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with young women leaders at Girls Inc. where I can tell that there's a level of anxiety that's deeper than schoolwork. And you know, when you've had the experience of having creditors call your house every single day and that you might not have any food, what that kind of fear looks like. And so, you know, serving them is so fulfilling to me because I just wish I had Girls Inc. when I was younger with all of my heart. And so being able to have those conversations with some of our young women and the girls that we serve and and seeing through some of what they might not be ready to share yet or or some of the experiences they might be having at school or at home and being able to have that trusted relationship to dig deeper with them is just so critical to me. It's, you know, I see myself in them and it just makes it personal and all the more important to me and, and what we do. I just can't imagine how seen, you know, we were talking earlier about, to, you know, meet people where they are, hear them, see them, to, to have that gift for them to have now. I mean, who knows how it's shaping them, right? Yeah. And I think that is the important, maybe not in that level in corporate structures or wherever you are in the workplace. But I do think that that's why it is so important to have that diversity and inclusion. Um, it's not, I'm glad that we're talking about it. It's, it's kind of everywhere right now, which I think is a good thing, but I don't want it to be a fad. But the reality is, is that if you don't have folks who have had these lived experiences, you're never going to be able to talk in a real way to your consumer base to know what, you know, they might be experiencing, what they want, um, what their needs are. And so it's so imperative for us at Girls Inc. to have that that diversity at all levels of our governance structure and our staff and our volunteers, because we just, we need to make sure that we aren't missing anything um, and that we have folks who have that lived experience that can inform our work. Oh my gosh. Amen. Yeah. Amen. We're so passionate about that right now. I love the way you said it. The way I talk about it is how do we, how do we have organizations of all kinds reflect the world they operate in? Right. Right. 
Like, even if you have no heart, no morals, no whatever, it's just a good business decision. Fine. Look at it that way. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. it's just so, like you said, it's so ridiculous. How can someone be expected to thrive if they don't have access or representation? It's just, anyway. you know, I heard the CEO of Cardinal Health speak. He is, um, leads a company of 50,000 people and is extremely invested in DEI and uh, that's all he speaks about anymore. He won't take any speaking engagement that isn't about their work in DEI and how important he feels it is. And something that he mentioned, the reason I was thinking of it was because of what you said about how you don't want it to be a fad. You don't, you want it to be sort of how we start looking at the world. And he, I thought this made so much sense. He said that the DNI leader, their chief DNI officer that they, that they have is probably the hardest role because if you take your foot off the gas for one second, it starts to slide back. Like that's just the reality of it. They see it over and over that they have to be pushing all the time so that it doesn't lose any traction. I believe that. I mean, it has to be comprehensive, constant effort. And I'm glad to hear that, you know, a company of that size is, is so invested in this kind of space for his organization. We got to make that contagious. I know. Right. Exactly. Completely. So Allison, anything you would add about your own story and connection to just Girls Inc.? Because I know how passionate you are about this organization as well. You know, I, my story is so the opposite of Elisa. And I have to tell you, every time we talk and we're, you know, we talk as a team with our teams working together, Girls Inc. and Blue Base, like I feel that so acutely in the room when we're together, the level of privilege that I have and how different my angle of why I'm so invested in empowering women and girls is, is just so different. My lens is so different. Not bad, just, you know, just different. But I grew up in a house where it was my dad and mom and three girls or more at any given time. We had foster kids who were girls too. And we grew up in this whether it was by their own design or just the way they moved through the world, which is sort of how they are, that, you know, it wasn't about gender. It wasn't about what girls could do or couldn't do. It was like, you know, here's what, you know, oh, you want to be a doctor? Great. Well, here's what that might mean. And here's some things you're going to have to do and and invest your time and effort into. And so when I went out into the world and to, to college, I was like a feral cat in downtown New York City. Like people said things that I was like, what? You believe that? But, you know, like, I mean, I had a professor tell me at Butler University that I shouldn't worry about it because I'm probably just end up getting married and not using my degree. I'm not kidding. Wow. So it was, it was shocking to me that, that that world was what the world was because that's, that wasn't my experience in my home and in, my, in the systems I grew up in. You know, I, my mom led things. Like, it was, there was just so, it was so holistic. So I, I was shocked and then really saw my own opportunities get super narrow and my own experiences with, well, why didn't I get that position? Why didn't I? And there's never a good reason except other than like, there was a white guy who wanted it more. (laughs) So, and it wasn't that, you know, people held me back that I, it wasn't that I have great examples of people specifically holding me back. It was just that I was plunked into these systems where I didn't have a voice. I didn't have, to your point, role models, anyone who looked like me leading anything, being an executive. And it was just extremely disheartening. And I was like, wow, I, if everyone is experiencing this as a woman, it needs to change. So that was sort of always what was behind my involvement in 
all the board work I ever did and all the organizations I was ever a part of, I mean, down to like roller derby. It was like, how much, how many more powerful women can I surround myself with and invest in and support? And so that's what led me to Girls Inc. finally too, because it's like, we got to start the ground up. You know, I was sort of like looking at the landscape around me, but to your point, to support those girls that need those things the most and have the least amount of control of what's going on in their lives, you know, how their rent's getting paid, how they're eating, that to give them any kind of tools to help empower them and and end those cycles was extremely important to me. Awesome. Yeah, me too. I just think, man, if those, if those kids, girls could know more of what we know now after all we've been through, can we have them one, not go through the same walls we've had to go through, but how can we help them find their voice sooner is how I like to think about it. So it's pretty, it's exciting. So the question now is, uh, at least I'll start with you. How can we really, how can we support girls? So maybe people are listening, like what does Girls Inc. even do? How would you advocate if you wanted to be a part of Girls Inc. or like, just give us some insight on how do, how do we help girls? If I'm listening to this now and I want to do something, what would you say to them? I would say first, I'll just start off with what we do at Girls Inc. Our, our mission is to inspire all girls to be strong, smart, and bold. And we do that through our Girls Inc. experience, which, <laughs> which it consists of, Sherry just showed me her cell phone, which says strong, smart, and bold. <laughs> um, so the Girls Inc. experience, it consists of the people um, who are in front of our girls, who are serving our girls, volunteers and staff. It's the environment that's safe, inclusive, so we can have some really intimate conversations with girls about what's going on in their lives. And it's a safe space to do that. And um, finally, it's the programming that's comprehensive, research-based, sustained. We serve girls ages 6 to 18 my goal is to increase that age because we know that uh, girls are especially vulnerable when they are leaving the whatever nest, whatever their nest looks like and goes on to their next chapter of life where they might not have the supports that they've had before 18. So I could see that age range going up. We serve girls in Indianapolis. Um, our affiliate does in every single school district and at our girls. Inc. So we, we serve a just a tremendously diverse population of girls in Indy and throughout the donut counties. On a macro level, we are part of a national organization that has a presence in over 78 cities in the United States and Canada, which is really important because I think that there's something really special about having, um, being part of a sisterhood network. And I think there's a lot of potential there to leverage those, uh, those relationships um, and that alumni base to just have this powerhouse group of women who also give back to young girls. And so you're really creating a cycle of empowerment um, that's sustainable for the long term. I think there are so many ways that folks can support girls individually with their actions and their words uh, and showing up for girls in their own communities um, that you can take on yourself. I think, you know, I'm consistently, I don't want to say shocked because it happens all the time, but maybe just a, a dagger to the heart every time I see a sign that says that girls, you know, if you're a girl, you can be a ballerina and you, you know, you can dance. And I saw this sign that had like all these really delicate words that were attributed to girls. And then for boys, it was, you know, boys are get dirty. They take risks. They 
can play, fight. I don't, it had all of these traditionally gendered words and it was in a toy store. And I think it was well intentioned. And this is just one example of something I've yes. seen over and over yeah. again. But we're really setting up girls to a certain standard. Yeah, of course you can be a ballerina if that's what you want to do. Absolutely. But you can also climb a tree and take risks. And and I, I think it's really important that we don't set up our boys for that either because we need to give them permission to feel and be vulnerable or else we're yes. going to, to have these leadership situations where men are stereotyped and embarrassed to have empathy. And I think it just creates this really toxic culture. And so individually show up for girls, girls and youth in general, listen to everything that you say. And it's amazing what will happen if you give them your undivided attention and listening ear to them. So I would just say that whether that's your own kids, your own girl, neighborhood, community, whatever that looks like, you can support girls like that on an individual level with your actions, your words, and how you show up for them. Um, on a larger level, you know, we're 98% philanthropically funded as our most girl-serving organizations in the city and around the country. And however, uh, despite the impact that you can have by investing in women and girls organizations out of all philanthropy, 1.6% of all philanthropy goes to women and girls serving organizations. Wow. 1.6%. Wow. Oh my that, God. That is a statistic that absolutely makes me it. curious. Right? So if the best investment is to essentially create a village and teach a woman to fish, right? And we're only giving 1.6% of all of our philanthropy to those organizations. I just, that is why Bill and Melinda Gates have changed their entire strategy to invest almost holistically in women and girls because it works. There is research to support that it works and it will go to every single indicator that you care about, economic, poverty, breaking true cycles, health disparities, education, invest in women. And so our girls will become women. And so that is another way that you can support is if you don't want to support Girls Inc., totally fine. We would love to have you, but definitely invest your funds in a women-serving organization or a girl-serving organization because your dollar is going to go that much further because of the impact that you'll have in the long term. And of course, volunteer. Um, we have plenty of volunteer opportunities. You can find all this out at girlsinkindy.org and vote. Vote like your life depends on it because it does. Um, <laughs> so vote. I mean, that's pay attention and vote and elect women into office because we're just 25% across the board. It's atrocious. I just want to be really frank. Most of the countries that I've lived in with lower development indicators have many, many more women in office that are represented. And let's start voting in all women. Um, you know, it's even just like the CEO and Fortune 500 list. Yeah. You know, 5% women there. One is a woman of color, 25% of women in Congress and the Senate, so much less than that women of color. So we just, we want to have a democracy. Let's have a democracy and have democratic representation. So vote like your life depends on it because it does. I'm so triggered right now by so many things. Like I want to, I want to cuss and say hallelujah at the same time. First, can I just applaud? Thank God. You, I knew we'd get to this, but vote Lord Almighty. Oh, Lord. <laughs> so true. So true. I, I mean, 
honestly, forget politics, people. Like you got to vote for, I was saying the other day, take the person that you think is the least diminished, marginalized, whatever adjective you want to use that that peels back all the layers of your privilege, take that person into the voting bank with you and vote for them. Please, like, please, if you, anyway. All those statistics stacked up together. I often tell people when I talk to them, like about our women's leadership development experience, that if I have to hear five years from now that the amount of Fortune 1000 CEOs still sits at 5%, I might start driving my car through town and just hitting people and stuff like that statistic. But now I have to add to my fuel is the 1.5% of philanthropic investment that goes to girl and women serving organizations. That absolutely just made me completely ragey too. I mean, all of those things stacked up together and, you know, the amount of women that are represented in politics, like when are those needles going to move? Why can't we accelerate that? That it's is like, yeah, totally. It's a huge focus of ours too. We, Girls International did, I'll send you both this report if I have it already, but they had the American Institutes of Research um, did a study nationally on Girls Inc. programming and a specific focus on leadership and what happens when you're a Girls Inc. girl um, and the indicators for leadership are much higher, you know, way more confidence in girls that go through our programs, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, what their findings were so important to me because they specifically called out that, you know, we across the board, you know, when we're talking about intersectionality, all women truly are graduating at higher rates from high school and college. We are the majority of the workforce but we are so underrepresented on leadership positions. So we have the capacity, we have the education, we have the resumes, we have the knowledge. Why are we not breaking through? And I think we really have to keep pushing. I mean, I, I think in the United States, that is where our biggest opportunity for massive large scale changes is to make sure we keep putting women into positions of power. Right. Let's talk about that. Can we? This yeah. one point, this one point six percentage has got me so fired up right now. I'm like, oh my god. So, Allison, I love your question about, oh my god, in five years, if this number hasn't changed, I'm going to start running people over with my car. First of all, thank God Elisa's with us, who has some grace, because Allison and I are just like, let's just burn everything down and start <laughs> burn it down. <laughs> burn it down. Um, but I, I would love your your reaction to this, both of you. Is that First of all, Elisa, you've been a big part of just my own journey into my own racial bias and trying to unpack that. And how do we how do we do that? And one of the things I've learned, I think I've learned, this is what I want your reaction of, is that there is a lot of good intention out there, but I'm, almost every organization I know, almost every organizational system I'm in, familiar with and leaders who lead them are confusing activity with impact. And what I mean by that is we have lots of DNI plans, we have lots of ERGs, but we have nothing changing. Like the system isn't changing. All the window dressing around it confuses us as if we're trying. And, and we might be, but we're not trying at the right things. In other words, the system isn't broken. It's producing exactly what it is. We need a new system. What do you guys think of that? Am I crazy or is that true? I, I mean, you know, I totally agree with that. I think that 
even listening to a lot of the conversations that we're involved in with clients, with, you know, people that clients connect us to, that there is that activity. And what Sherry and I have started asking people is, where's the accountability? How do you hold people accountable to it? So you have metrics. So what happens if they don't get met? And that's the noise people make, by the way. Crickets. Dead silent. So the companies that have started to get it, that have started to try to change their systems are the ones that they tie it to comp. That's where they're actually having traction. So that like that frustration level of people that are like, well, we do this, we're doing this, we're doing this. Is it being measured? And if it is, if it even is, lots of companies that haven't got to that point, they're all just in place. Where's the accountability for making it happen or when it doesn't happen? You don't meet the metric. Right. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And I, you know, I think if you think what you think is important, you're going to devote real resources towards and you're going to measure and you're going to hold it accountable. Just like Allison said, if you're not doing those things, do you really like any other area of your business? Mm -hmm. Would you do any of that? No, No. absolutely not. Absolutely not. And so I am always, again, I not surprised, but I'm, I'm just consistently disappointed when I hear friends of mine who do D and I work and they will get calls from large corporations in this town to come and do a one and done workshop on diversity or, you know, implicit bias one time and they want to do, they want them to do it for free. Yeah. And you know, what a slap in the face. Um, it's, it's so disrespectful to ask somebody to do that kind of service at a corporation for free. And so it's time to really devote resources, metrics, and accountability to this work across the board. And you know, if you don't start doing that, you know, at least my experience is I've gotten almost all of my roles through some form of a network or a mentor who saw something in me. Most of them, you know, were white guys, but if you don't have that kind of network or community as a base and you're isolating people and, you know, it, you're never going to make traction. Um, and it's just going to be a, a continued cycle of, of marginalization and uh, a lack of inclusivity, even if you have the diversity headcount. Exactly. Exactly. Like it is systemic, right? So it's, Mm -hmm. it's, yeah. So Lisa, one of the things that we're all trying to do is have impact together. Should we talk about that? Yeah, let's do it. So how do we even describe what we're trying to do together? Maybe I'll let you describe it, Elisa, because we're your, we're, we're here to be your workhorses. So hard to put into words because it is really, we're changing a lot of the landscape and I'm learning about what learning really is and how you embed that kind of behavioral change into youth programming and really just any kind of behavioral change at an adult level. I think what we're trying to do is change the world. (laughs) Uh, That's all. That's right. Um, And I think, I think it's important because these systems are so entrenched that we start with youth and um, start these conversations so much sooner. We're really, um, attempting to, you know, provide curricular and programs for girls with deeply trained facilitators that really understand how to interact with young women and how to keep moving the needle forward by focusing on 
who they are. You know, when we're talking about serving the whole girl, you know, so much of my intelligence about my identity and who I am and my values didn't come until much later in life. And so how beautiful to provide young women with the tools to really understand who they are, what they, who they are first, what they want to do based on their values, what their paths might look like, you know, how to support one another, how to give back so they can be prepared to sit at the most important seat at the biggest tables when it's their time to do that. And that could even be now, right? Like who's to say that these young women can't sit there right now when they're ready, who's to say that they have to wait until after they graduate from college. So really just preparing the next generation of leaders to be themselves and their true authentic selves and not have to fit into any preconceived box that our systems have set up for them. That's incredible. So it's so fantastic. I I mean, we we tell you guys this all the time, but we feel so honored to be a part of this just incredible work. And and I have to just say, in some of the focus groups we've done and trying to understand this as we co-create and collaborate on this, getting to meet some of the girls of Girls Inc., I'm like, how are they using words I didn't know how to describe myself until I was like 40? (laughs) so how incredible and so inspiring it is it's like oh my gosh if we can even infuse more of that to more girls to your point Elisa it will change the world I mean that's what gives me great hope is this generation coming up from your daughter Allison to your girls at Girls Inc to my niece I mean oh my gosh on my darkest days I think about those girls and I'm like thank god we have them they're coming you know it's true me too. And they're fired up. Like they, for our high school girls, even middle school girls, they care so deeply about their communities, about things that they know that they're going to have to face. You know, for some, it's, for some, it might be our debt, which is fair. You know, what we're setting them up for financially, um, climate constant, you know, they are really concerned about what their world and what their kids' worlds will look like. And I think that that's really fair. They are ready to infiltrate <laughs> and make real change. We do not tell them what to believe in. Right. We want them to have the tools to advocate for themselves on behalf of others. Based on what they believe, we will never tell them any sort of any sort of belief outside of you have the path and the tools to, to make true transformational change and that's that's where what our stake is is making sure they believe in themselves and they have the tools to move forward god i can't wait (laughs) i I really can't wait what i love about them too is they don't really maybe they don't know or maybe they don't care even better about that preconceived box (laughs) yes i think it's that they don't care thank goodness because Mm -hmm. the box never should have been built to begin with damn it right Mm -hmm. i love it i love it so as we think about kind of you know we've talked about voting we've talked about some of these different levers like what is is there anything left unsaid that we haven't talked about in terms of just girls not even just girls inc but just girls in general and what we want to make sure people understand I guess there have been a few conversations I've had within the past year with some individuals who think that because women are graduating at higher rates than their male counterparts, that we have achieved full parity 
and that weren't there. And as much as I want to roll my eyes at that, I think that that's a a pretty real belief for some um, that, you know, now that women are not first and foremost thought of as um, homemakers, potentially that we're, we've made it in terms of women's equality, but I think there are just, there are tremendous barriers that young women and women in general are facing that do not create the same free flowing path that men have to leadership or access or opportunity. And I, mm-hmm. I think that's really what it comes down to is, are we giving each other the same access and opportunity to succeed, whatever, whatever success looks like for us? And, and I would say no. Um, I would agree. For all women, but specifically for women who are marginalized, um, we just have a lot of work to do. I mean, the statistics on the status of Black women is just, it's appalling. And um, it is. And I think we should, we should really talk about what that looks like and what the realities are for, for so many of us who don't get our voices heard. I love that. The question around... I mean, to me, I'm simplifying it and I don't mean to, is what, how many limiting beliefs, like unconscious bias, limiting beliefs to our point earlier about white women not even understanding, how could I, I don't have black skin, a black woman's journey, how men, men unintentionally assume they know what our journey is. <laughs> you know, like I remember the conversation we were having, Allison, with a male leader we have so much love and respect for. And he thought he was really doing this great service to a woman by not having her interview for a big project or the next promotion because he knew she was so overwhelmed at home. And he really thought he was being compassionate. We're like, you can't make that decision for her. Like, mm-hmm. So I think it's those small things. And then it's also these big systemic things. There's so, to your point, Elisa, there's so much work we have to do. Yeah. And I think systems start with people, right? Systems are built by individuals. And so, yes, we have to tackle the systems, but it starts with you. And, uh, you know, what is your contribution? And so making sure that we're listening, showing up and supporting all women is just critical. I mean, the amount of conversations I've had in different spaces of my professional life where exactly, you're exactly right, Sherry. And it's a fear of mine to be completely honest with you as I think about, you know, whether or not I want to have kids. First of all, it's just obnoxious that almost everybody I meet with asks me if I have kids. And I say right. I have like three to 4,000 of them. Um, <laughs> that is the best answer, Elise. <laughs> so annoying that I get asked. 4,000. Um, but it's that I've been in this space. It's a real fear, especially for, you know, women who are really trying to pave their career that you are going to be sidelined because you have children and people are going to discount you. I've been in that conversation. We're like, well, you know, she just had a kid. I don't think she'd be ready for this opportunity. That's not your decision to make. And that's just one example of so many where we intentionally or unintentionally sideline opportunity and access. God, I so get it. I so love that. And and I love, thank you for bringing up the point about systems are just individuals. I mean, back to your DNI comment, I meant to say this then, that when we get calls to work with the executive teams in particular on diversity inclusion initiatives, I, I mean, I'm like, I don't want to see your DNI plan. We're going to do the internal work. 
We're going to have you go inside yourself and investigate all the dark caves you need to go into. Because to your point, Elisa, that's what's going to change the system and how they hold those things. Mm -hmm. So I love that. I think that's a really important point. And it made me think of how you said uh, when I asked you, what can you do for girls? And you said, just show up for girls. I would say that now show up for women, listen (laughs) to them, hear them. Like I get triggered by the word ally, which is probably a whole nother podcast. <laughs> oh, I'm sure it will be. <laughs> I'm like, ally, do you need allies when you're the one that started the war? I don't know. It feels wrong. Anyway, whole nother podcast. <laughs> I'm so glad you brought that up because I think ownership and accountability for our own stuff is what's going to change it. It's never a magic wand, right? It's always human beings and criminal change. Yeah, but I, I do feel like there's an awakening right now. And I'm excited about it. It's painful. Yeah. <laughs> really painful. But I feel like there's real movement. And that's exciting. You know, we need to have these really tough talks. Um, and a reckoning. What's the most, as you say that, that you're, you are, you do experience excitement in these times. I wish I could share that enthusiasm. What makes you the most excited? Yeah, I love that question. It's the hope I have for our next generation of girls, hands down. Next generation of leaders, I think. Unfortunately, adults really minimalize youth voices and trivialize them. And they're so insightful and are so cognizant of what's going on around them and energized about what they can do to change it and you know, having these conversations with the girls that we serve, that is what gets me up every morning and out of bed and excited to do the work that we do because they recognize the climate that we're living in and it's not the world that they are, that they want to lead. Um, and so they're going to change it. That's what gets me excited every day. Right now, I'm excited about this moment because we're having the conversations that have been so deeply entrenched in our world and in this country since its inception. And we are at least starting to talk about it. And I I think it's been pretty sustained throughout this year and as it should be. And um, I think we just have to continue to have these painful conversations to, like you said, burn it down and build something beautiful and new. So Elisa, thanks for being here today. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Oh my gosh. I mean, I, I think we could be here, couldn't we, Al, another like five days? I was just thinking that. I was like, maybe there's a part two to this podcast. I agree. <laughs> yeah, we will do part two once we get further into our journey together. Maybe yeah. we'll- that would be so fun. That would yeah. be awesome. We'll do that. So if you're listening today, we hope that some of some of what you're exploring is how you can maybe take Elisa's advice and, and just receive some information. And if you do have girls and women in your life, how can you just show up for those individuals that are in front of you and that you can open up space for and maybe minimize your own? And that as you're listening to some of the things today, if you did find yourself being triggered, please sit in reflection on that. What does that mean? How can you be curious about it? How can you start to engage in conversations like the one we've had today so that we can all start to explore opportunities for power too? power to create strong, smart, bold girls. Mm